News Power Hour. Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. Yeah, and it's uh, Alec Hogg coming to you here from Santon, where the head office of Biz News is. Today, we have got four big stories that we're going to be giving you context on. The banks lending to struggling businesses. Why is it not happening? Why is the president fighting with the Reserve Bank governor? Mark Barnes used to be uh, right at the top of Standard Bank. He is now the chairman of the Kisby Fund, and we're going to be talking to him a little later. Also today, ISIS attacking a $15 billion total gas project in Cabo Delgado in the north of Mozambique. More on that story. And then the big one in New York today, we saw some big wipeouts in banking shares, particularly Nomura, the Japanese bank, and in Credit Suisse from Switzerland. This is all to do with a hedge fund that's gone south. And then we'll close off the program tonight with institutional investments into a Bitcoin. Lots coming up, but first let's get the News headlines from our Jackie Cameron. Opposition parties, the Democratic Alliance and Action SA, are urging the South African government to take action against Islamic insurgents in Mozambique. They warn that the violence looks certain to become a refugee and security crisis in South Africa. Deployments to our border regions must also be increased, says Herman Mashaba's Action SA. It says, with South Africa's porous borders and failures to manage our borders effectively, we cannot be assured that we will be able to keep ISIS out of South Africa and that training camps do not exist in the north of our country. The Mozambican government cannot handle this matter on its own and cannot protect its own citizens as well as South Africans in that country, says the party. It also says that we cannot fail Mozambique in the same way that we failed Zimbabwe. We cannot afford another failed state on our borders, it says. Martin Ewer of the think tank the ISS told Biz News earlier today that SADC involvement in bringing the ISIS reign of terror in Mozambique to an end is critical for stability in the region. He also says that Islamic cells in South Africa are involved in funding militants in Mozambique. For more in-depth analysis on the Mozambique crisis, listen to the Biz News Radio interview with Martin Ewer. Biz News Radio podcasts are available on all the major podcast channels, including Spotify. A recovery in the world's second largest economy may lend support to emerging markets following a rocky week that saw equities wipe out almost all of their annual gains and the Turkish lira tumble anew. Data from China expected out on Wednesday is forecast to show a rebound in both the manufacturing and non-manufacturing sectors, supporting the broader backdrop of improving global growth. Meantime, the developing world's improving corporate outlook may lure investors to buy the dip, reports Bloomberg. South Africa has more than 120 major restrictions and about 100 moderate restrictions from other countries in place because of the variant which is widespread in the country. This was revealed by travel website Skyscanner, which has developed a mapping tool that shows COVID-19 travel restrictions around the world. South Africa is one of the worst red-flagged countries in terms of international travel. Travel and tourism contributed 7% to South Africa's economy in pre-pandemic times, 
and accounted for about one and a half million jobs. Johnson and Johnson has agreed to supply as many as 400 million COVID-19 vaccines to the African Union, but much of this delivery will only come next year. The U.S. drug maker can make available as many as 220 million doses of its single-shot candidate to the AU's 55 member states, starting in the third quarter of 2021, it says. A further 180 million doses could then be delivered the following year. South Africa has already started administering the J&J vaccine to health workers as part of a medical trial, and J&J agreed last year that South African company Aspen Pharmacare can manufacture doses in the country. President Sil Ramaphosa, who visited an Aspen Pharmacare facility on Monday, says that Aspen would provide 30 million doses to South Africa, but he didn't specify how quickly rollout would commence. The vast container ship that has been blocking the Suez Canal for six days has been freed and is moving north to an anchor point. That's according to the Suez Canal Authority, which says this paves the way to open the critical waterway and end days of global supply delays. And that was your Business Flash Briefing. I'm Jackie Cameron for Business. Well, there's been crazy stuff happening on the markets today. Justin Rowe Roberts gets his kicks by seeing prices go up and down. But uh, this is a big one, Justin. Agreed, Alec. Um, let's start with the JSE All Share Index. It was up at 67,100. The main story happening in the financial markets today involves Archaos Capital Management, a US-based family office that took concentrated leverage bets on US media companies and Chinese internet giants. Investment banks Credit Suisse and Nomura have issued statements warning investors of significant losses following a default on margin calls on Friday. Investment banks involved include Credit Suisse down 15%, Nomura down 16%, Deutsche Bank down 3.5%, Goldman Sachs down 2%, and JP Morgan down 3%. In the currency markets, the rand was flat against all the major currencies to 14 rand 97 cents to the dollar, 20 rand 63 cents to the sterling, and 17 rand 62 cents to the euro. Gold is down at $1,711 an ounce. Brent crude is flat at $64 a barrel. And the premier cryptocurrency is trading at 870,000 rand a Bitcoin. Well, David Shapiro is our guest co-host on Monday's Dave. What a crazy, crazy story. And we've actually got Mark Barnes who's going to talk to us about something else. We're going to go more into, how do you pronounce it, Justin? Our chaos capital management. Our chaos capital management, which is run by a guy called Bill Huang, who was a protege of Julian Robertson. You'd remember Julian Robertson, David. He's 88, kind of your vintage. <laughs> Close to my age. <laughs> Close to your, well, I'm sure, Mark Barnes, you remember him uh, as well, Julian Robertson. But Bill Huang was a guy who got into big trouble in 2009 by getting information given to him confidentially by investment banks and then trading on it. Eventually, he had to pay a $44 million fine. So what was that story about cockroaches in the kitchen, David? Yeah, when you see a cockroach in the kitchen, you know sooner or later you'll meet the family. So um, I, I, I think, <laughs> Alec, this is, a, this is another instance of, of the sheer greed of the investment banks who just didn't do their due diligence, who didn't do their proper risk management, and have been caught. I mean, it's, uh, it's no surprise, though. Mark, we're going to talk to you in your position as the, the chairman of Kisby, but you were once an investment banker. Something like this. They had to unwind $30 billion worth of positions in pretty crummy stocks. 
Wow. Did yeah, it ever I mean, happen I in your time? Yeah, it has. Uh, you know, it's, it's all about having a statistically calculated margin that has to be put down to trade, okay, which, which assumes some normal level of volatility. When that volatility bursts, okay, and you get a movement in the price way outside any statistical confidence interval, then you get an immediate, urgent, and significant margin call. If you cannot meet the margin call, which is covering your highly leveraged position, then they have to force close you out, okay, in order to settle the trade. When that happens, significant losses occur because everyone sees you coming as a forced seller and the price eats away even further at its own demise. And so you have this natural burst and this, and this crash. And, it, and it's, it's, it's all about being overgeared into a stock which suddenly enters a volatile uh, spectrum that it never was anticipated to do. So and real, that's the name of the game. Yeah, you know? real, real simple terms. What is a margin call? Just, to, just unpack so, that so, for us. So if I want to bet on Standard Bank shares, if you like, okay, and typically the, 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 the Standard Bank shares move less than 5% in a day, let's say, then, then I might, as the person who allows you to take out a contract for difference on the Standard Bank shares, allow you to put down, say, 10% of what would happen uh, if the price moved against you by 5%. Okay, so you'd, you'd cover the likely move in the value of your underlying uh, position uh, so that if it did move, uh, you, they could close you out and no one would lose money. So you, if, the, if the stock then moved 4% and, and you closed out, the, the provider of the contract would be covered because they would have on deposit your, uh, your cover for the normal volatility. Now, if Standard Bank moves you know, 80%, then they, the margin that they, they've got to cover your position, which now must be closed out because you don't have cover anymore, is uh, a, you know, a fraction of what is required to cover your trade and keep it alive. And so without that deposit there to keep your trade alive, that trade now has to be closed out at any cost, okay? And mm -hmm. as you force close these trades, that forced seller uh, presence becomes known in the market and all the nice little shorting hedge funds and so on join in the meal, you know. David, wasn't there a fellow here in South Africa called Russell Lee and DealStream who did stuff like this in whew, 10 or so years ago? Alec, the danger is on the contract for difference. And that's, that, that's the public enemy. That's what a um, Warren Buffett would call, you know, um, what's it, instruments of mass destruction or weapons of mass destruction. And, and the problem is that a contract for difference is nothing more than a bet between you and me. A man, you know, just two people. Um, proper risk management would actually then, if there was that contract, you would then go and cover yourself in the market uh, against the kind of position that you've made or the bet that you made. But it's obvious that in this case, there was no cover. In other words, the... The uh, what what did uh, Justin call it? Arch, I, I, I call it chaos capital management, David. And David, just a point there on margin. Warren Buffett did once say, "If you're smart, don't use it, and if you're dumb, you shouldn't be using it." <laughs> but, but so clearly, in this play, in this case, Arceus had an uncovered bet. Okay, essentially, is what David said. That's and then, exactly and the that point. thing went. That thing went. Badly wrong, way beyond Arceus's affordability to fill up their account and keep the bet alive. Okay. But hang on, let's just, just think about this in logical, rational terms. Most individuals 
struggle along on well under a million dollars a year. They may give a lot under a million dollars a year. Here's a fellow who was able to punt to the degree that Nomura has told us that they are exposed to the extent of $2 billion and uh, Credit Suisse, a similar number as well. Now, that's $4 billion that those two banks have lost. Shareholders have lost a lot of money as well. How does someone become so important that they can be given so much money to bet with? Because he gives the deals. Because he writes through those investment bankers. And the investment bankers don't do their risk management. So if you're, a, if you're on the desk, if you're a young person on the desk and you're able to land an account like this and you're going to get a lot of trade coming through your desk, you start to drop your guard and you don't do the risk management. And the risk managers at the bank also don't do their, uh, the, you know, the proper due diligence on a daily basis. They automatically assume that he's good for his money, which he obviously wasn't. And he was it managing... Happened he was managing family money, I guess, which makes it even worse. So family officers uh, give their money to somebody because they, they, they don't know how to do it themselves. <laughs> they give it to this Mr. Bill Huang, who's, who's wiped out. It would be interesting to see which families. Alec, but the other point is that he acts independently. Because it's a family office, he's not, he doesn't have to report to the kind of risk managers that may be um, a larger institution, you know, that Mark Barnes and Mark Barnes at Standard Bank would, would, would you know, watch all his traders. He would watch. Yeah, so so we would never, yeah, we would never allow, we, we'd have the right to automatically close out that position uh, if there wasn't sufficient margin. Okay. And so we would, the, our systems would monitor that. There would, there would have to be stop losses put in place. There'd have to be all of these cautions, you know, ABS brake systems. When you're driving fast, you need a good braking system, okay? And and so that's what's been absent here. Someone took a wild fling. The counterparty was looking to make a lot of money as being the counterparty in the trade, and it went wrong. And I'm surprised it doesn't happen more often, uh, given the irresponsibility that prevails for, for some of the players. It's not to say that that's everybody. I mean, a, a lot of this stuff happens in a very responsible, risk-managed way. Well, we're going to be talking more about this uh, at the top of the hour with Saad Jacobs, who's one of the top hedge fund managers here in South Africa with 361. But Mark, we actually asked you onto the program in your capacity as the chairman of Kisby to, to mm. help us understand what the devil is going on here. We have a situation where the president of the country is attacking banks and saying to the banks that they should be lending more to businesses. And then you have the governor of the Reserve Bank coming out and saying the president is wrong, effectively. You can, you can be more diplomatic about it, and he certainly was, but that is what he said. What is happening here, uh, Mark, given that the Kisby Fund, which, which you are driving, is yeah. in this market? Do you want to actually raise money to give to small yeah. businesses to keep them going? Yeah, so it's, it's interesting, and there are a lot of reasons why the loan guarantee scheme hasn't worked, or it's only worked to the extent of, you know, 9% of its full potential. And the first one is, and, and you know, I've had this discussion with banks because we actually proposed an alternative structure to the Reserve Bank uh, or to National Treasury, which I can get back to. But, but essentially, the first problem is we're living in an environment of such uncertainty that not everyone was keen to take on more loans, 
to keep their businesses going. A lot of them were saying, let's, let's rather tighten operations, let's rather get smaller than stay open and get more deeply into debt. So there was no demand. Okay, that's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is that this kind of scheme runs completely contrary, in my view, to the DNA of credit. Okay, credit is a system which relies on uh, observed, uh, you know, confidence intervals of how credit exposures are going to behave across the entire economy. If you, there's, there's nothing more stupid than introducing cleverness to credit, okay, or overriding credit principles. So here, a bank has been given an instruction, essentially, to lend regardless of the credit risk on the basis that they will be guaranteed by National Treasury and they must just take the first 6% loss, okay? Mm. Well, that doesn't work because the last thing you want to do in your bank is go and make a reckless loan and then have to go back to National Treasury and then ultimately to, the, to your boss, the Reserve Bank, and say, we, we can't get the money back. We made a bad loan. And they'll go, can't you guys make loans? They say, well, you told us to make the loan. And so the whole thing actually was flawed in its design. Second point. Third point, the returns in that market were, are not commensurate with the risk that was being offered. People were being asked to lend money at 7% into a credit that was uh, more risky than that 7% would have allowed. So there was a natural built-in expected default rate, which meant that the, that the system was flawed. So, so you know, I would argue that banks are not in the business of lending against guarantees. Okay? They're in the business of lending against balance sheet and income state ratios and evidenced performance of all of their accounts, which drives them into covenants and ratios and things of that nature. If you override that and ask them to lend blindly under instruction, you put the rank banking system at risk. But Mark, uh, either Cyril Ramaphosa is too tied up with what's going on with Ace Magashule, etc., at the National Executive Committee, which, by the way, we haven't yet got a, a final no. Uh, no. news on that one, or he doesn't understand banking. You're asking me, you know, they still got my ID number. You're asking me to preside over that question. <laughs> okay, I love well, you. well, so do I, but let's just leave it as an open question then. What if we had a state bank? A state bank would have lent happily because they'd have been told by the politicians to do so. Yeah, I think we're, getting, we, 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 we're doing a lot of things. First of all, I don't think that kind of lending should have been performed by the banks. I think... And if, for example, and this is, might even be public knowledge, we offered, we went to National Treasury and we said, listen, we'll underwrite the 6% that, that, uh, that, that loss. We'll put capital down. And then we will go and make loans where the banks are not typically going because we will have other instruments like equity exposures and so on. And so we'll take that, we'll take the loan risk and we, and, and give us the money. And they said, but you're not a bank. And we said, well, you know, the banks aren't using the money because of some of the reasons I've just outlined now. And so what we had is, 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 is directives overruling commercial judgment. And that just doesn't happen, you know. And, and if it did happen, you'd have to be more worried if banks start lending under instruction. We've got a real problem, okay? So you have to find the right risk appetite and the right mixture of capital instruments that would go into including a loan which is guaranteed by National Treasury, which would have the characteristic of lowering the return you might seek on such a loan and therefore lowering the overall cost of capital to the underlying company and allowing it to perhaps grow and create jobs and all those kinds of good things. But doing it through the banking system is actually not where it's going to find a comfortable home.
But maybe then we're going to finally get to where it should be channeled through, and presumably it would be organizations like Kisby and other funds like that that are yeah. looking to uh, specialize in this area. Yeah, so if, if we were to take on a loan like that, and, and okay, so we, wouldn't, we would charge a lower rate because we've got a national treasury guarantee, but it would definitely be part of a mix. And, and we, would, we would seek, you know, equity instruments as well, or we would seek, uh, you know, philanthropy or grant funding to, to underpin such a loan. You, it, it is not something which can be looked at in pure isolation. And all you're doing is asking the banks to increase risk where, one, that risk wasn't sought, and B, it wasn't properly priced. They won't do it, and they shouldn't. So the, the Saab governor, Lisecho, is absolutely right in uh, defending the banks. It's not their business. But, no, it's not their business. But Cyril wants, to, wants it to happen, as we all do in South Africa. We need small businesses that have been smashed back, need help. They need funding. So maybe just a, a change in, in mindset. Are, are you able to phone the president and say to him, you know, this, is the, this, this would work? Um, the next time uh, the president takes my – no, I'm not able to <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, I'm not able to either, Mark. So uh, no, no, the two no. of us are kind of out of that loop. Hopefully we can no, find somebody think, like listen, Carrie I who think, can. <laughs> I think it's a process of elimination. We are going to find the right capital uh, construct because if we don't start funding SMEs, if we don't start funding the real economy, if we leave all the capital in the established markets – then I'm afraid the, the polarization of our economy is going to continue and get to a point where actually we're starting to have a fight. So I think it's going to find its way there. I don't think it needs force. It needs appetite. It needs, uh, you know, it needs for asset managers to say, I can't have 100% of my uh, investments in listed equities and bonds. I need to take 5 or 10% of my assets and invest them in the real economy uh, in a combination of et- equity and debt risk. And section tw- the new Section 28 starts introducing that kind of openness. And I think that's where we're going. And I think actually because of the very construct of banks, let's go back to basics. Banks are the only companies in the world that are allowed to leverage themselves 10 to 1. Okay, They've got 10% deposit, 90, uh, sorry, 90% deposits, 10% capital. That's how a bank works. It lends out on a 2% margin return on assets, and it makes a 20% return on equity. Why? Because it is a safe, overseen, properly evaluated credit risk entity. It, it, it takes deposits and it lends that money out at a margin and it's allowed to gear its balance sheet to do that. You, that is not the appropriate liability side of a balance sheet to take the public's money and invest it in equity risk. That's not what banks were designed to do. And so these hybrid lending uh, capabilities are going to emerge because we need to satisfy. We need to, we need to eliminate micro lending. We need to eliminate uh, destructive credit at rates which are way beyond rooserous. People are borrowing money month to month at, at two or three percent a month. You work out the compound interest. That's over forty percent per annum. Okay, there has to be a different solution than either borrowing from a bank or going into the informal market, which which is you can't afford. But in a way, the, the, at least the fact that the conversation is uh, is being made now or is opening up is a very good thing. David, you're going to have to bellow into that microphone of yours. I think we're going to, we, we'll have to fix your, your, um, your Acer <laughs> tomorrow and get, but if you can bellow in there, I'm sure you've got some, some points to make. No, I have. You know, there's something that bothers me that we haven't quite tapped on. And there's, there are two elements to it. I hear what Mark's saying. 
That comes when we're ready to stimulate the economy. But up to now, in the meantime, we took away revenue and we took away income from so many businesses. It's government's duty to replace that. You can't just say, go and borrow that money. We closed this economy down, not because of a recession, not because of any economic situation, to prevent a virus spreading. So I think that there are two elements. We've got to replace that money, whatever cost. Once we've replaced it and the economy is working again, then we can do what Mark says and start taking business risks. So I, I, I'm, you know, I still think, I don't think we've really come to terms with the huge damage and the amount of money that has been taken away from businesses that were successful in operating. And now we just leave them, we abandon them with all these kinds of rules. So I think there are two elements to it. We've got to put this economy at whatever cost back to where it is, whether it's taxpayers' money or whoever does it, then we can take the other thing of stimulating the economy David, and start looking. Mm. How do we afford that? Because then you're borrowing from future generations to actually keep You've got to, businesses going. We have, we have to do that now. Yeah, the, the alternative is what we're going through at the moment, is completely sinking this economy. Yes, we might have to do that, but at least we're saving the ship from sinking. Mark, do you agree, or is there another way? Well, you know, the state has to get its money from somewhere, okay? It hasn't got any money. So to look at them as a uh, as as the financier, uh, you know, to, to, to pay back the COVID missing money, it, it, it's just going to be difficult already. The sovereign state is not able to raise capital at a competitive rate, if you think about it, okay? And if you think about SOEs, essentially SOEs are being funded against national treasury guarantees by the banking system. Just think through that, what's really happening is that the retail depositor, which is putting the money with the banks, is funding against the National Treasury Guarantee, SOEs, and other capital that's not generating a return. Okay, And so we've already got to the point where the state can't issue capital at a competitive reinvestable rate. Okay, And so I don't know where the capital comes from uh, if we're looking to government to provide it, because What's, what's essentially happened is that we've invested a whole lot of capital in dead assets, okay, non-return assets. And so, you know, it's going to be very difficult to see. There's only one source of government money, and that's tax. And so I would argue that the government should be investing rather than, you know, just giving money into, the, into this or, or enabling such an investment so that we can grow a new tax base because that's at the real core of this problem. So let's get creative. Let's look at organizations like the one that you run, Mark, because it's is not alone. There are other SME funds as well. And the first step seems to be just switch that 6% guarantee, which the banks are not using, to, yeah. to organizations which are set up to do exactly what government wants them to. Yeah, I think, you know, I think that, uh, you know, we, we, for example, we're happy to underwrite that 6% risk, okay, um, with our own capital or with capital that, that, that we could raise, okay. And then, uh, but, but it needs to be taken out of the banking system. Now, the problem, you know, it's all very well to talk about this, but the problem with taking, uh, you know, banking risk out of the banking system is that National Treasury can't willy-nilly stand behind such a guarantee. National Treasury requires the Reserve Bank's oversight to ensure that the banking system does and functions as it's supposed to. And therein lies this whole contradiction. The banking system was imposed upon to do something which is not in their normal remit, 
and theref- and and that against the guarantee. And there was no. I mean, David is right. The people didn't want the money. They didn't want to borrow more money. To they didn't want to borrow more money. Okay, they'd they'd, they'd be happy to take some money, get their get their turnover back. But the, the 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 businesses that were in trouble, the last thing they felt they could afford to do was borrow more money, at whatever rate. And so what we needed is an equity player. We need it. We need equity into the system, we, which is not the preserve of the banks. And so we needed a, a marriage between national treasury guarantees, or if you like, the vehicle of the state, however that manifests, to and to underwrite some of that risk so that the rates could be lower and take on that as their social function, if you will, and let the people who lend smart, difficult risk capital out enable them to do so at a lower rate. Mark Barnes, the chairman of the Kisby Fund, and uh, giving some insights for us there. David, um, I think that we've certainly unpacked it to to my understanding of things, and let's hope that what Mark is saying, which is very rational, uh, falls on the right ears. And remembering that the South African government is desperate to become the entrepreneurial development state. Well, how can you be more entrepreneurial as a development state than investing in the businesses that, uh, that, that you want to keep afloat? So maybe somewhere along the line, uh, a penny will drop. Dave? Yeah, you just got to get Cyril away from talking. I can say it, even though I have an ID number. I think we've got to get Cyril to take a very long one. Attention away, yeah. To take it's an old one to to take his attention away from Ace and to start concerning himself with turning this economy around, getting the vaccinations out, and uh, making sure that this uh, this economy floats. You know, for me, it's a frustration, and I understand where Mark's coming from, but we need to do the. These are the important things, not how the ANC is uh, structured. Anyway. <laughs> You're listening to the Biz News Power Hour, brought to you by the team at biznews.com. What are the men? Well, we're we moving back on to the story. Just tell us how to pronounce it again, Justin. Oh, chaos Capital Management. Oh, chaos Capital Management. It's a, it's a huge story. It's, it's <laughs> knocking markets all over the world. It hasn't yet concluded. It didn't hit the JSC yet, but hopefully no South African uh, banks are exposed. No, I don't think we have any banks big enough to underwrite these kind of uh, investments, Alec. Unless Bill Huang... Uh, was acting on behalf of some South African families. So Oppenheimer's, Rupert's... Uh, there are a select few. There are select, um, uh, I suppose maybe Chris Becker, very few. But we haven't heard any of that yet, so let's just uh, believe that that isn't the case. But earlier today, Tom Keane from Bloomberg uh, had a conversation on this subject. Let's listen in to what they had to say for our partners at Bloomberg. What are the managements of Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley? What are they doing right now? What are they doing this Monday morning? Well, you can be rest assured at this stage, the management at Goldman Sachs is definitely breathing a big sigh of relief. They did. Asia telling a lot of their clients that their losses are going to be immaterial. That is, of course, very different from the headlines we have seen coming out of places like Nomura and Credit Suisse. Morgan Stanley has been uncharacteristically quiet, but that's not a strategy that's going to work when everyone from investors to regulators will be demanding answers to get to the bottom of what really happened here. 
Sri, do you look at a family office the same as a hedge fund? Did this margin call occur because actually uh, Mr. Wang's shop is a family office, maybe more private, maybe more separate from the compliance and regulation of hedge funds? It, it really is a nomenclature mismatch, isn't it, Tom? We're talking about a family office in this case, which, if all the chatter right now is to be believed, had already got a few billion leverage it was employing. It was a serious, serious force in the market, much bigger than several large hedge funds out there. So for the banks on the other side, dealing with this firm, they couldn't possibly be treating it any yeah. different. For them, it has to be just as important as their most important hedge fund client. And yet this blow-up that has uh, unraveled in breathtaking speed uh, tells you that not all the boxes were checked properly. Well, joining us now is one of South Africa's top hedge fund managers or top asset managers, Sai Jacobs from 361. Jai, Sai, really good to have you on the program. Uh, have you been following the the whole saga that is unwinding in New York? I absolutely have. I find the story quite fascinating, obviously. So thank you for having me on the show. $10 billion of family money that Bill Huang has been managing. Maybe... Just to, just to go into this guy for a minute, he used to run the Tiger Fund in Asia. He was a protege of Julian Robertson, who's about David Shapiro's age at 88. Uh, had you heard about him before, Bill Huang? I have not have heard of him before. I've, I've read, obviously, what he has done over the last over this last weekend, but didn't know the name before and cannot believe I didn't know of a fund that had that size exposure, uh, you know, as of a few days ago. So what actually happened here? So, so really what happened is uh, the fund had done obviously very well, and uh, I think a lot of banks wanted to get the business of this fund. Bill Wang, who was effectively once actually uh, prosecuted under an Insider Trading Act in 2012 and caught and fined, decided to build up his own hedge fund business with lots of leverage. So he took on initially, he started and managed to get $5 billion of investors and geared that from what we can understand close to about five to six times, i.e. his position sizes were more like 30 billion in total, of which potentially 20 or 25 billion would have been long and a few billion short. And obviously using various swaps or CFDs, he was able to get that amount of exposure via numerous banks, Nomura, uh, RMB Morgan Stanley, Deutsche, Credit Suisse, and it looks like even Goldman Sachs. And they would all probably be unaware potentially of each other's exposure, which I think is, is quite interesting. And as he did very well, and he was in a lot of actual, in some cases, frauds, like we think GSX uh, is an online educational fraud that's been pumped up over the past year. Uh, and obviously he had significant exposure to many of his companies. His companies have done exceptionally well. And the better they did, the more inflows he got to the extent that we believe he was running somewhere between 15 to $20 billion of capital and probably close to 80 to $100 billion of exposure. And obviously, as soon as that exposure adjusts, it looks like uh, he had a, a stake in a company called Vipshop that initially did a rights offer and had a, a, a bit of a problem and had a bit of a fall down. So if that company loses, for example, 40% and it's a big stake in his, he could lose a big percentage of his capital. It makes banks uneasy. They force a margin call. 
he can't make the margin call unless he starts selling other businesses, which eventually that cascades and he can wipe out his capital very quickly because that's only a portion of his exposure. And the next thing you know, he's blown up his shop and all the banks effectively own all the shares and they're trying to sell them as fast as they can. And so this is his fund worth zero. So all investors have lost their money. And then the banks are sitting with the tail end of his positions. And looks like Nomura is losing over $2 billion, Credit Suisse $4 billion, Deutsche is not saying. And the clever ones always in the camp of Goldman Sachs who probably saw this coming and, and probably shorted the positions out before taking the positions over to ensure that they weren't losing too much money. Sai, you, you used a figure there of 80 billion rand that he was betting with. Now, dollars. Uh, uh, dollars. Dollars, sorry. 80 billion dollars, big difference. South Africa's GDP, now that's all the money spent in this country in one year, is around, used to be, 350 billion dollars. So if you take 25 cents of every rand spent in South Africa on anything in a year, that is the size of this guy's punt. How is it Absolutely. possible for that to happen? It just sounds like ridiculous that the banks would be so dumb. Well, unfortunately, the banks look at this in terms of almost like a standard procedure. This is a big equity. For example, he had Spotify, Farfetch, Vipshop, Baidu, GSX. These were big companies, in some cases 20 billion US dollar companies, and I suppose the banks get carried away like they do in every cycle and assume there's enough liquidity uh, and probably don't know about other banks' exposure to the same instruments uh, and continually want the business of this big hedge fund, which in global standards is massive if you've got close to $100 billion of positions. And so they were offering credits and obviously not actually looking at the underlying businesses close enough because, I mean, for example, our funds were actually short to GSX. Um, you would have expected that an underlying bank would have looked at this and said, we're not prepared to offer credit against such a company or VIP shop, which, you know, is really doesn't make much money. And potentially we need to get, say, an 80% coverage, not a 20% coverage. Uh, they eventually get caught. We see this in every bubble in the market. And unfortunately, here we've seen it again. So you will recall long-term capital management, which was managed by supposedly the smartest people that had ever hit the asset management industry. It's being likened, this disaster, to LTCM. Is it accurate? Uh, it is accurate in a way because it's very large for its time, and I think LTCM was enormous. The difference being LTCM was very focused around junk bonds, uh, this is really around junk equities that should potentially never be financed to that extent. And I suppose, uh, yeah, you know, it's again banks not doing their proper homework to understand the underlying holdings and their exposure properly in what they effectively have lent out to. And uh, we see this time and time again. Shaul Boerter is our colleague who has been in the asset management industry before. Shaul, uh, clearly you've uh, not come across anything like this, because none of us have. Um, but what is what are your thoughts on uh, what's happening at the moment? It does remind me of LTCM. I read the book uh, by Gregory Zuckerman, I think. Excellent book on that. Um, yeah, just uh, it's fascinating that this keeps on happening. I mean, it's not like this. these are stupid people. Um, one then has to say maybe they know this can happen, but they play while the music is playing you know they keep on going they know this is probably gonna 
blow up at some point, but if you make uh, hundreds of millions a year, um, I don't know if you if you think about it in long-term trends. David, again, you're going to have to mm. shout into that microphone of yours so we can yeah. hear you. <laughs> you, you know, long-term capital, in fact, it's when genius failed. In fact, they played the difference between Russian bonds and, uh, and, I'm making a, you know, and, and U.S. bonds. And the thing is that if they could have lasted for about another few weeks, they actually would have made a huge money because their bets actually came right. In this case, where it's gone wrong, Alec, is that the banks haven't cross-checked. Today, if you go for credit, if you go and you want to buy a motor car, you're asked to fill out a questionnaire and asking where else do you have credit. And that's where the banks, the investment banks have failed. They don't ask that. They automatically assume that Archigos has got enough, you know, is well covered in order that, and they've covered their risk. And this is what happened. And, you know, Sai explained it brilliantly in the sense that it was one investment that just went wrong and enough to have. Well, it looks like the whole. Or eliminated the base capital, which actually. Hmm. Sorry. Yeah, David said it well. I mean, but what I'm saying is these people are very smart, so they would they would know this. Ask ask the different people what you have. You know, ask why don't why don't they do this? Yeah, I, listen. What I understand, I think it's important, is that uh, Archigo's capital were actually very sly in the fact that most of the lines mm. of credit were in the form of swaps. And you couldn't see, in fact, that Artigos Capital were actually the underlying holders of all that swap product. Uh, and that's the problem. Banks aren't exactly going to share their customers' swap product identifications with other banks. Oh, but that sounds like fraud. They well, were, were I would it. say that this bill, this bill, Wang, I would say is I would, I, would, I would ask you all to please look at videos of him where he thanks uh, God for giving him the light uh, and for directing him in the direction of all these investments, because that, for me, uh, some while back, was already a red flag that people were starting to starting to point out. <laughs> and I never realized until I watched the video again now of that was the same fund manager who just blew up. Sai, you mentioned GSX uh, being a fraud. Yes. Uh, that's an interesting comment. Just take us through what happened there. So, so GSX is an online education business that was founded in China. Uh, there's a very good, there are very good analysts, uh, Hindenburg Research, I would refer you to those of you who follow Hindenburg on Twitter. They uncovered this as a fraud mm-hmm. and they have worked out that the numbers that they are claiming that they have of students online, etc., are fraudulent. The revenues are in fact potentially fraudulent. Uh, the videos are kind of repeated at different levels, no matter what year of education you're in. Uh, and the entire business has just uh, almost been a joke. And this is one of the biggest holdings that uh, Archigos had. Um, so, you know, that's, that seems to have unwound some 49%, I think, on Friday. Uh, more so because, obviously, there's forced selling. But you can see in the likes of the proper businesses that aren't frauds, Farfetch or Spotify, the, uh, the falls were a lot less. Um, than than those like GSX, where the stock was at ninety dollars in the middle of last week, and it's now thirty four. So the the comment that you made about this guy saying that he had divine intervention and divine guidance on what to buy has to bring up Kathy Wood, 
who in uh, the, the FT yeah. weekend two weeks ago was saying how she also gets divine intervention and she's yes. doing uh, God's work. Are you worried about her credentials as well? Yeah, well, I, look, I, I give her credit for building up an enormously fantastic, profitable business and having fantastic foresight into investing into new technologies. Uh, my concern, though, is that she has got very large, 50 billion U.S. dollars uh, in AUM, got there very quickly and got there with a very uh, speculative portfolio that doesn't earn proper returns. The businesses don't earn proper returns. So as a result, we're entering into a different cycle now. Rates are starting to rise. You know, growth stocks are being looked at strangely. Value stocks are maybe coming to the fore. And as a result, I have concerns that that portfolio is, in most of it, are substantially overvalued. So the ETF that we look at, the Innovation Fund, the code's ARKK, uh, we, in fact, would prefer to be short rather than long, biggest holding there being Tesla, uh, and for us being massively overvalued, along with many of the other top holdings. You mentioned Tesla, which brings us to Bitcoin. We need your view. You know, the scarcity of it and the fact that the world's crazy doesn't mean it's not going to continue going up. Uh, trying to put a value to it is impossible. Um, you know, I say to anyone who is wealthy, you know, put, if you're not going to, you're not going to need the money, put what you don't need, one or two percent of your money into cryptos and hope for the best because, you know, you never know where they could go. Um, but I'm not a, uh, a fundamental long-term believer in the crypto space. I think it will have its day and eventually it will run out of daylight. Justin, before Sai goes, I'm sure you're itching to uh, pose a question on this. Yeah, no, just to what Sai was saying, what I found extremely interesting when I was doing some due diligence today on our chaos was that a lot of their holdings had done fantastically well over the last 12 months. Um, they had holdings in some US media giants, um, Chinese internet giants that were doing extremely extremely well and it almost just seems like there was excessive risk taking here and they were leveraged to the rocks and any unfavorable movements in those share prices led to this um collapse so that's absolutely spot on just absolutely spot on so while you're riding the tiger it looks great but you've got to know when to hop off exactly and of course um well by the seams of it bull bull huang didn't know when to hop off so when do you get out? When do you sell something like uh, Spotify, well, for I, instance? Well, well I, think, I, think, I think the first thing, you know, is how much to leverage. And there's no – we've learned this once, and I won't name people, but there were one or two hedge fund managers in South Africa coming into GFC 2008 who had similar types of gross leverage and blew up their funds. Uh, a four to five times leverage fund in highly speculative stocks – where I believe most of his hedge was in the form of shorting uh, S&P futures, that is not a hedge fund. That is a, a punting shop waiting for a hiding. So, you know, as far as we're concerned, I mean, we hardly have any leverage. If we do have, we might have 20%. They had 500%. Um, you know, and, and you have to match your longs with your shorts from a liquidity profile, from an you know, economy point of view, from an industry point of view. Here you had a totally total mismatch of liquidity and a mismatch of brand new technology companies that potentially could all fail, you know, versus shorts in a value index. Uh, it's just really a total mismatch waiting for a hiding, and unfortunately it came. 
Thanks to Cy Jacobs, one of the savviest asset managers in South Africa, co-founder of 361, which is one of the, well, has been the hot shop uh, for a long time now. So uh, good to get his insights. In just a moment, we're going to be looking at a major threat on South Africa's doorstep, the attack by ISIS on the Total project, the $15 billion project in northern Mozambique. You're listening to the Biz News Power Hour, brought to you by the team at biznews.com. Well, the project in the Cabo Delgado province, which is the northernmost province in uh, Mozambique, to bring in gas from the sea, one of the richest deposits ever found on Earth, was supposed to transform Mozambique. Indeed, the, the investment that's being made there is itself a multiple of the size of the Mozambican economy. But things seem to be going awfully wrong at the moment. Our editor-at-large, Jackie Cameron, put this report together for us. Violence is escalating in northern Mozambique, with Islamist militants blamed for attacks last week, including a siege on a hotel. The Democratic Alliance has called for a troop surge, comprised of all Southern African development community countries in the Cabo Delgado province, where a number of South Africans were killed as they ran for their lives. Witnesses have described hiding out on a beach strewn with headless bodies. Martin Iwe, a Mozambique expert with the Pretoria-based think tank, the Institute of Security Studies, told me, Jackie Cameron of BizNews, that there are links between Islamists in Mozambique and Islamist cells in South Africa. He also warns that similar attacks can be expected along Mozambique's borders and including in South Africa if southern African governments don't take more decisive action against the militants operating in Mozambique. Insurgents related to the al-Sunnah Wajama, also known as the Islamic State in Mozambique, carry out rampant attacks in Parma, which is... uh, 230 kilometers away from the province capital, Pemba. It's also one of the closest towns to Musimboa de Praia, which has been under the control of the militants. The main attack in that town was actually the attack at the Amarula Hotel, where a lot of foreigners were staying in. That created a situation of pandemonium where people were running all over in escape of the attacks. There was need for rescue operations of many of the people who were at the hotel who had fled to different parts of the city, and some particularly in the forest, and some went to the port where they were waiting for a boat to take them across. So the situation was um, and very, very horrific for anyone to witness. How many people have died, do we know? We don't have the exact number yet. Um, as I said, that the attacks were, they were rampant around the, the town. What has been reported so far is that um, two-thirds of the town uh, has actually been destroyed by the, by the militants. And therefore, it will take some time for us to be able to get a clear figure in terms of the number of deaths. But also, what has been reported so far is that dozens of people have died. We also know that in South Africa, the government or South Africa has lost uh, its own citizens uh, who were also in that, in that hotel. 
Do you think this is going to spill over into Mozambique's other neighbours, like Zimbabwe and South Africa? We have actually at the ISS warned against that. ISIS is involved. ISIS is a global organization, and we know that they have actually established cells in some of the countries around uh, Mozambique, South, uh, South Africa being one of them, where you have active Islamic State cells. There are other countries within the region where these cells uh, have been active, though they have not carried out any violent attack. But we know that they have, to, to a larger extent, been involved in mobilizing financial resources, most of which go back to sponsor the activities of the group in Cabo de Gado. The whole region is threatened. If we stop what is happening in Cabo de Gado as if it is just a Mozambican issue, and then I think that we will be mistaken. We need a regional response in order to make sure that even if we eliminate the Islamic State in Mozambique, it will not pop up somewhere else, which is most likely if we deal with this purely as a Mozambican problem. For the full interview with Martin Iwe, a Mozambique expert with the Pretoria-based think tank, the ISS, do go to BizNews Radio. You can find it on all the main podcast channels, including Spotify. That's a terrific interview that Jackie did there, one on our borders, something that, uh, well, supposedly is being promoted from camps within South Africa. David, Dudu's got an idea here. Your microphone on your headphones, if you pull that close, she thinks you might be talking into that. Yeah, let's just, just give it a try. You mean into this one? No, not working. No. Better the other microphone. I, 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 I can make it work. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll get it sorted soon, but, uh, but certainly from tomorrow. Um, just to have a look at this, Dave, this whole Mozambican story, it is a wonderful project. It's transformative for the country. And now we've got the politicians who, who uh, well, uh, not politicians at all, uh, the, 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 the activists, the, the crazies who actually want to destroy no matter what the consequences are to the people around them. Now, now we've lost you completely, Dave. Anyway, um, Charles, have you been following? Uh, there what, you are. Are oh, you are. back? You're back. Okay. All right. Alec, Alec what, what concerns me, and uh, you know it's on our borders, but surely the SADC or the African Union, surely this is an issue that they must address as a nation or as a continent. And there hasn't been any appetite from them to actually address this issue. And, uh, you know, I don't know what's scaring them. I don't know enough about African politics to actually make that comment. But, I mean, this is an issue where you would assume that the armed forces of the neighboring countries would take some action. But they seem to just stand back and allow this to happen. So that, to me, is a, is, is a bit of a puzzle. And, of course, it not only affects the... The, politi- you know, the, the, the politics of the region, but of the economy of the region as well, as you have uh, identified. It reminds me a lot of when I was farming in Moy River and we could see the cable thieves who were coming down from Peter Maritzburg <laughs> and they would, they would take some more telephone cables and they were coming closer and closer and closer to us. And you almost had this feeling that eventually they were going to take the telephone cables that connected us on the farm through to the, to the studio at MoneyWeb in those days. And here's a similar thing. 
ISIS was going up mm. in the Middle East. Then they started getting involved in Mogadishu and in Somalia mm. and a little in Tanzania. Mm. And now they're in Mozambique. So do we wait for them to get to Pretoria before there's anything that, that happens from a South African perspective? My goodness, this is not a, uh, an idle threat. They've, been, they've killed nationals, citizens of this country. Imagine if those were American citizens and it was an American neighbor. Uh, you'd have the Blackhawks in there uh, and, and, the, and the SEALs and whatever in an instant. And we in South Africa hardly even know that some of our fellow citizens have had, to, had their heads chopped off effectively. Uh, Alec, I'm sure that the Americans would love to get involved in this because it's ISIS. You know, but I don't think they're allowed to. I think that uh, probably the African Union or SADC are you know, preventing them from getting involved militarily. You know, that's another mystery because I don't think the American or the CIA, whoever's in charge of it, would really allow this to, uh, you know, to escalate. So there, there's, there's something there that doesn't add up, you know, that, that we're not taking any action against us and just allowing it uh, to develop and to escalate. So there are, there are political questions that have to be asked. Well, we've helped you to get better informed today, I hope, on a name, number of areas. Uh, the big story coming out of the United States, uh, that's one with, uh, you're going to have to say the name again. Our chaos, chaos capital management. Our chaos. And I do you were the only one who pronounced it correctly. You know, all the rest of us got it wrong. I did listen to Bloomberg TV this morning, Alec. <laughs> and I do think this is going to be a developing story. I'm sure more will unfold as the week goes on, which will be interesting to, to keep uh, well, tabs on. From what SAS says, if there's $80 billion that is exposed Ooh. or that positions, we've only just seen the beginning of it, it seems, um, so far. And then we also had some very good insight from uh, Mark Barnes on this very confusing fight between the president and the governor of the South African Reserve Bank. And Mark seems to have nailed it. He said, this isn't the bank's jobs. Give it to the people whose jobs it should be. And of course, now Mozambique, right on our borders, has got an ISIS hotspot where they're killing people. Uh, it's not just a fantasy over there. It, it is happening. And they are attacking the one project in Mozambique that can transform that country. So interesting times. Let's hear the news headlines from our editor-at-large, Jackie Cameron. Opposition parties, the Democratic Alliance and Action SA, are urging the South African government to take action against Islamic insurgents in Mozambique. They warn that the violence looks certain to become a refugee and security crisis in South Africa. Deployments to our border regions must also be increased, says Herman Mashaba's Action SA. It says, with South Africa's porous borders and failures to manage our borders effectively, we cannot be assured that we will be able to keep ISIS out of South Africa and that training camps do not exist in the north of our country. The Mozambican government cannot handle this matter on its own and cannot protect its own citizens as well as South Africans in that country, says the party. It also says that we cannot fail Mozambique in the same way that we failed Zimbabwe. We cannot afford another failed state on our borders, it says. Martin Ewer of the think tank the ISS told Biz News earlier today that SADC involvement in bringing the ISIS reign of terror in Mozambique to an end is critical for stability in the region. He also says that Islamic cells in South Africa are involved in funding militants in Mozambique. For more in-depth analysis on the Mozambique crisis, listen to the Biz News Radio interview with Martin Ewer. Biz News Radio podcasts are available on all the major podcast channels, including Spotify.
A recovery in the world's second largest economy may lend support to emerging markets following a rocky week that saw equities wipe out almost all of their annual gains and the Turkish lira tumble anew. Data from China expected out on Wednesday is forecast to show a rebound in both the manufacturing and non-manufacturing sectors, supporting the broader backdrop of improving global growth. Meantime, the developing world's improving corporate outlook may lure investors to buy the dip, reports Bloomberg. Let's just uh, close off with the market today, Justin. The JSE All Share Index was up at 67,100. The global investment banks involved in the collapse of our chaos capital management were ravaged today. Credit Suisse down 15%, Nomura down 16%, Deutsche Bank down 3.5%, Goldman Sachs down 2%, and lastly JP Morgan down 3%. In the currency markets, the rand was flat against all the major currencies to 14 rand 97 cents to the dollar, 20 rand 63 cents to the sterling, and 17 rand 62 cents to the euro. Gold is down at $1,711 an ounce. Brent crude is flat at $64 a barrel, and the premier cryptocurrency is trading at 870,000 rand a Bitcoin. Lastly, in the US markets, the Dow Jones Industrial Average, S&P 500, and NASDAQ are all in the red. Thanks for being with us tonight. We'll be back with the Biz News Power Hour, 5.30 to 6.30 p.m. South African time. Join us every weekday night, excepting on Friday, of course, because Friday is a public holiday. But on uh, business days, we're here. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.